My name is Isabel Trick, and I'm an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at Global Council. Welcome to our podcast series, The Global Month Ahead. Towards the beginning of each month, I get together with colleagues from across GC to delve deeper into three of the most interesting events and developments taking place in the months ahead. You can expect a focus on issues with broader geopolitical or economic importance, and we will make sure that you know more than your friends and colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. For the March edition, we will focus on the upcoming elections in Iran and Russia, as well as on the UK budget. On the 1st of March, the Iranian government will hold elections for parliament and a body called the Assembly of Experts, which is made up of clerics with a very important task. In addition, this is also the first election since the widespread protests which took place in 2022 following the death of Masa Amini in police custody and since the crackdown that followed. And finally, the elections are also taking place against the backdrop of the Israel-Hamas conflict, which gives this even more geopolitical salience than elections in Iran even normally have. So there's quite a lot to unpack. And to do this, I have Thomas Grotowski with me. Thomas is the head of our global macro practice, and he's a longtime Iran watcher. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Isabel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I've already slightly teased this in my intro, but what are Iranians actually voting for in this election? As you rightly say, Iranians will vote for two bodies, the Mashlis or Parliament, and then secondly, the Assembly of Experts. In Parliament, uh, since the 2020 election, that chamber is fully dominated by uh, regime supporters, hardliners or principalists, as they are sometimes called, and that won't change with this election. In a sense, the Mashlis has become a full rubber stamp. The Assembly of Experts is different, and that election is perhaps more important than the parliamentary vote. Uh, this is because the Assembly of Experts is only elected every eight years, and the current Supreme Leader, Ali Khamenei, is 84 years old. And so that means that the next Assembly of Experts will likely select the next Supreme Leader, though the Supreme Leader might also be determined by another group in the regime. It's also important to keep in mind that elections in Iran aren't free and fair. The Guardian Council, which is regime watchdog, has disqualified a large number of candidates before the election, including the former president, Hassan Rouhani, who wanted to run again for the Assembly of Experts. In some places, there's actually no competition at all. And because of disqualifications and because of the similarities of candidates, there hasn't also been a real debate ahead of the election about policy. And so, in a sense, you know, the election is very much, uh, at, at least at a, in, in a, to a certain extent, uh, a, a done deal is not very competitive. And so the, 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 the focus to some extent is how actually some different groups perhaps in the regime are competing uh, in this election. But uh, the choice is really very limited. So you're expecting relatively little change in parliament, especially because we've had so many disqualifications of candidates but a good chance that this new assembly of experts has the opportunity to pick a, a new supreme leader, given how, given how old the current leader is, if they do get to make that choice. But if there is so little choice um, among the candidates for parliament and for the assembly, do you expect that people will actually go out and take part in the elections in any significant numbers? This is a major question for Iran watchers, but also for the regime. This is especially so because since... The last two elections, especially since 2020, voter turnout for legislative and presidential elections has dropped significantly by perhaps 20 percentage points. So roughly one third of voters uh, hasn't gone uh, to the previous elections than, than used to go before. And 
this is very much because since then President Trump pulled out of the Iran deal in 2018, the regime has very much closed the political space and reformists and pragmatists, of which Hassan Rouhani was one, have been really increasingly sidelined, have been disqualified from running for, for in elections. And since the election, presidential election in 2021, really all government institutions, so not only the religious institutions, but also the Republican institutions, if you will, have been under the full control of the, of the establishment. And so that means that there is a widespread uh, voter apathy. People don't think that, you know, voting makes, makes a difference. And so I, I, I would expect that voter turnout will remain very, very low. The regime will try to fudge the numbers, will try to mobilize its own supporters. But I think as such, turnout will be low, also in part because there have been significant calls for boycotts of the election. And so, as I said earlier, I think there is a bit of a nervousness among the regime because they will use the numbers that they see and they will probably see the more realistic numbers than we will ever see. And they will see use this as a gauge to see how much support there is for the regime and uh, to what extent, uh, what the risk is for, again, widespread uh, violence, as we saw in 2022. I think you're already leading us perfectly into what I was going to ask you next, because what do you expect on and around voting day itself? Do you think there's going to be public discontent or possibly even public unrest? So if you look at Iran over the last couple of years, there has been really waves of protests. You mentioned the most recent one, which was also the most severe one, uh, actually the most severe one since the Islamic Revolution. But we also saw nationwide protests uh, in 2017, 2018, uh, around the turn of the year. Uh, we saw significant protests in 2019, around the time when uh, Iran uh, raised uh, fuel prices. And so, of course, this election is again, to some extent, provides an opportunity for protests, uh, for protesters uh, to get on the street. I think the regime is very much aware of this. And if you look at how it responded to the Asamini uh, protests, and if you look at perhaps, um, for example, President Raisi's own record, uh, he has been sanctioned by the US for human rights violations dating back many decades. I would assume that the regime would handle protests not very lightly. And that clearly is, is one of the factors perhaps that that might, at least around this election, lead to protests, but not uh, to this, at the same scale that we saw a couple of, of years ago. Of course, what is important also to keep in mind is that the economic situation is still very challenging. Inflation at around 40%. Your sanctions uh, remain fully in, in, in place. Obviously, Iran remains still very, uh, depending on, on oil income, which is subdued because of sanctions. So certainly the potential for conflict, but equally the, the crackdowns we have seen in the past might caution people or might uh, make people think twice about whether they are, they're willing and able to go out on the street uh, in this instance. But I'd actually like to turn to the regional dimension, zoom out a little bit and kind of go beyond Iran itself, because the geopolitical context is particularly interesting this time around. How would you say is the Gaza conflict influencing developments in Iran and possibly um, vice versa? That's a very good question, in part because I think when the Hamas attack happened, many, including myself, thought that Iran, to one, in one way or another, was involved in the preparation of the attack. And I think there's probably evidence for that. But at the same time, it seems to me that Iran has actually, since the attacks, worked 
to limit, to contain the geopolitical fallout from the attacks and also the fallout from, to some extent, Israel response. Of course, the situation is one that Iran can exploit. Uh, and I think, you know, we all have been reminded that, that Iran has significant influence in many of the countries close to Israel-Palestine, uh, not only in Palestinian territories, but also if you look at Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and elsewhere. But so internally, of course, there has also been pressure on Iran because of, especially from hardliners, who have said that, you know, Iran needs to match its rhetoric with, with deeds. Uh, and so maybe that explains why Iran, on the one hand, has certainly not discouraged the Houthis from disrupting shipping in the Red Sea. There have been confrontations with the US, especially in Iraq and, and Syria, between either allied militias or even IRGC assets in those countries. So there has been certainly a ramping up in confrontation. I failed to manage uh, Hezbollah, which is obviously another one. But at the same time, especially after the attack on, on or and, and the killing of US servicemen in Jordan, there have also been attempts to actually limit, limit that conflict and to make sure that it doesn't uh, turn into an outright confrontation, maybe even on Iranian soil uh, with the United States. So I think overall, I would say Iran has probably played its card reasonably well, but the risk of escalation is, is certainly, uh, certainly, certainly high. And um, maybe lastly, from an Iranian perspective, of course, Iran, the Iranian regime needs to balance demands at home for its reaction to the conflict. It needs to respond to regional uh, expectations and ensure that its regional influence is maintained and expanded. But of course, there's also a global dimension. And uh, for example, uh, its relationship with China is very important. And I doubt that China has a long-term interest in disrupting trade between Asia and Europe, uh, given its own economic woes at the moment. While I have you, and you've already mentioned uh, the word global dimension, I'd like to quickly touch on one final global dimension. Because could we read into this desire to kind of avoid direct escalation? Is there possibly something positive between Iran and the US or actually is the nuclear deal dead like we've heard? I am not sure I am the carrier of positive news on that front at least. I think that for at least the next year or so we won't see any revival of the nuclear deal or of any other framework between the United States and Iran and perhaps other members of the UN Security Council. Very much Biden's attempt to revive the nuclear deal already stalled two years ago, now going into the US election. I think there's zero scope for that. Similarly, Europeans are probably only lukewarm about this because Iran has been actually an important supplier of, of drones and other military equipment to Ukraine, which has clearly soured that relationship. And lastly, I also think the current Iranian government doesn't really see the immediate necessity to re-engage on that on that front uh, so i think at least for the time being that's um uh, that's off the table what is i think interesting is still how the nuclear file and the nuclear question is changing the geopolitical landscape in the region so for for saudi arabia for example it is a, a you know a potential longer term threat to its own uh, security and stability And there are renewed talks between Riyadh, Washington, and involving uh, Israel as well, about a new defense pact and that would see 
the US, perhaps not at the same extent as, as NATO does, but perhaps very close to that model, ensure Saudi security in return for perhaps a form of normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel and some further economic cooperation across many, many different areas across those three, three countries. So that could be something perhaps positive, depending obviously uh, on, the, on the details. To what extent such a deal would affect then relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran, I think we would need to see. What is notable, that's my last point, is clearly that Iran and Saudi Arabia have maintained their diplomatic relations, have been able to contain the fallout from the Israel-Hamas conflict on their relations, which were just restored a year ago through a brokered agreement with China. So I think that is certainly noticeable. Look, you said you might say you're not always a bringer of positive or optimistic news, but you're definitely a bringer of um, interesting insights. So thanks very much for that, Thomas. Um, we'll keep an eye on what's happening in Iran on Election Day, but also beyond. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. The Russian presidential election is taking place on the 15th of March, and Vladimir Putin has now been in power for almost 24 years. The um, now amended Russian constitution allows him to run for an unlimited number of presidential terms. And there is very little doubt about who's going to emerge as the winner of the election. Therefore, the more important question is what to expect next from Putin's Russia, both domestically and internationally. Today, we have with us our resident Russia expert and the practice director for Europe and Eurasia, Alexander Smotrov, to look behind the scenes of the elections and the priorities for Putin's fifth mandate. Hi, Alexander. Hi, Isabel. So, I already mentioned that we're not expecting to be surprised by the outcome of the election here. So why do you think does Putin even still hold presidential elections? And what do you think would constitute a good outcome for him and for the Kremlin? Yeah, they still hold the elections because for Putin, the legitimacy of his power and uh, the popular support of him as president is very important. And it's it's not only about the result, because uh, to be honest, yeah, there are a lot of talks about various riggings and, you know, electoral irregularities and so on. But he would probably win without all this. But the um, range of popular support is important. So the turnout is the key battleground, which Kremlin is now fights for. They want to show that uh, people have not lost interest in politics and they they support putting very widely. So that's why the elections are officially on the 17th of March, but they are now being kind of repositioned for three-day voting from the 15th uh, to the 17th of March. And actually, some vote already started in the remote areas of the, of, of the country. And also, they will allow people to vote online for the first time all of this basically to ensure the highest possible turnout and which in turn will provide more legitimacy to him after after the elections. And the objective is to get uh, a better result every time. So last time he had 77%. They are not aiming for like 92% like President Aliyev got recently in Azerbaijan because it will look strange. They will probably stay within this kind of 80% region, but to show that more than half of of the country, for example, supports uh, him will be will be very important. And obviously, he wants to beat Zelensky, who got 73% last time without any rigging, being an opposition candidate. And yeah, Putin has all the resources behind him. And he, he wants to, to show that he can do better. 
So we're not watching just the outcome, even though it will be interesting to see whether he beats those 77% from the last board and whether he beats Zelensky. But we're particularly keeping an eye on turnout as one of the key metrics. It's interesting to see that quite innovative things are, are being introduced, such as online voting, and to see that extended voting time as well. Let's talk about what I would suppose is going to be one of the key issues in this election, if this was a free and fair election as we know it, which is the question of Ukraine. So how does the ongoing war in Ukraine affect the campaign and what could possibly define Putin's further decisions on the war? Yeah, that's an interesting question because obviously the war in Ukraine is the main backdrop of this elections. But at the same time, it's not uh, featured that much in the campaigning, in the messages. So the key messaging, to be honest, is on the economy and on the social welfare and the overall stability message, which the Kremlin tries to send and enhance at the moment. And they're quite lucky to have elections at this period of time because the Russian economy is doing doing relatively well on the back of, obviously, the public sector growth, the military sector and heavily subsidized mortgages and other measures of support for, for the population. So currently, the economy looks good on paper. It might change in the future. So the Kremlin will have to deal with the consequences of this disbalance in, in the spending and so on. But this will be for later. For now on, the, the environment is quite favorable. Also, they have pushed the negative sides of the war to the margin. So all this losses and public fatigue of the war, this kind of things, they're pushed to the margins of the agenda. The, the prominent features of, of the current news agenda is, again, Russian limited successes on the battlefield. This kind of things are being highlighted. Uh, and obviously, yeah, just to stir up a little bit of this patriotic feelings and so on. Again, this is a very good uh, moment to do this now. But what happens next is another question. And to be honest, the picture is not that rosy because to sustain all these advances and uh, the goals which the Kremlin puts in this war, they will need to do some drastic decisions, to, 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 uh, sorry, to take some drastic decisions. For example, maybe further mobilization, maybe increase of military spending, which in turn will negatively affect the general population. And But when you have the mandate, the fresh mandate, all the decisions will be easier to make. And last time after the 2018 elections, a lot of like unpopular decisions were made, for example, the pension reform and things like this. But once you're re-elected, you have a free hand in this. And yeah, so the expectation that the situation will be much more difficult and tricky after after the elections. It's a very good point that you make about the economy doing reasonably well right now. We've had the headlines just recently about just how much uh, Russian oil is still going to India and China, for instance. And of course, those recent battlefield successes provide a, a more positive background than maybe it would have been if the elections took uh, place some, some months ago. And I think this is a common one that as soon as you have this re-election secured, it's time for unpopular decisions. We've seen something very similar in Egypt just very recently. I want to touch on a different question because on the 16th of February, um, almost exactly a month before the election, we've had the death of Alexei Navalny, um, Russia's most famous opposition leader who died in jail under uh, very suspicious circumstances. What does this mean for Russia's opposition? Is there still an opposition in Russia today? There are various remnants of the opposition, I would say. And for those of them who are still in Russia, they are um, mostly 
either also in jail or at least in a very, very precarious circumstances and they cannot continue their activities because they are either outlawed or just do not have enough capacity or strengths to, to continue. There are obviously individuals who still come out for various demonstrations and protests, but the numbers are very, very limited and the consequences for doing this are very drastic. So there is a stronger opposition movement resided abroad in various countries in Europe and elsewhere. There is no unity in the Russian opposition and has always been the case. So now there are some ideas or some aspirations that, and as we do, Yulia, might become, you know, an equivalent of Svetlana Tikhanovskaya of Belarus, who became like the symbol of the, the united opposition after her husband was jailed. And yeah, there are some similarities, obviously, and the two women even met in Munich at the security conference sidelines. But again, this is all a little bit up in the air. So, and the opposition has been incapacitated by the Kremlin and I wouldn't see a very realistic prospect of them to consolidate or kind of to, to present a proper, you know, alternative to, to, to what's happening in uh, Russia now. So yeah, this is where we are and I'm sure they will regroup and think about the future, but we will know more about this in the coming months and um, not before the election, probably after. So as a final question, Alexander, I'd like to kind of bring us to the intersection of the question of Navalny and the question of the economy, which is the question around sanctions. Because we did have quite a strong international response to Navalny's death. But do you think it's strong enough to matter for the Kremlin, to matter to Putin? Yeah, you're right. We've seen a fresh wave of sanctions, but they were mostly timed with the second anniversary of the Ukraine war rather than Navalny. But a few measures have been tagged on top of Ukraine related measures. They are mostly symbolic because obviously there needs to be a political statement. There needs to be a political reaction from from the liberal democracies from the West. I don't think they will have any real impact on, on the Kremlin, on Putin's decision making and things like this. There is another idea which is now being mulled. I know that in some countries, but also, for example, what Yulia Navalny is calling for is for the West not to recognize the result of the presidential elections in Russia, like the EU and other allies did in 2020 with Belarus, when Lukashenko's re-election was not recognized and he is not a legitimate president in the eyes of EU, UK and the US. So, yeah, this could be an option and I'm sure it will be some some momentum for this, but the overall likelihood of this to happen is probably not that high because this will automatically close down a channel of communication with the Kremlin and for the West it's probably more important uh, now to have an opportunity to engage with Moscow still. Whatever reason you might have for this, either it's some kind of global security issues or any potential settlement in Ukraine or any other need by non-recognizing the result of the election. Obviously, this door will be largely closed. But let's see, even the, to have a conversation about this might send a signal to Moscow that they need to be yeah, more cautious. But again, in the current circumstances, sometimes to apply logical or pragmatic metrics to, 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 to Moscow's behavior is not always the best way to, to, to try to predict the next step. So we just need to see what happens next and plan a tactical response rather than strategic at the moment, I guess. 
Yeah, given Putin's focus on creating this um, impression of legitimacy, denying him the official recognition of his victory would certainly send a, a quite a powerful message, I imagine. But I definitely hear what you're saying about the likelihood of this happening. It's an interesting one. We're going to see whether he achieves his aims. He um, outdoes himself his previous victories, whether he beats Zelensky's victory figures. And we'll see what happens in the in the broader Ukraine-Russia war. And our Europe and Eurasia team is covering this very closely, not just with your regular newsletter, but you're also covering this in lots of details for, for lots of different clients. So if this is something you'd like to know more about, be, um, please do get in touch with, with our team and we'd be happy to tell you more. Thank you. On the 6th of March, we have the presentation of the spring budget in the UK. We don't tend to cover too many budgets on the podcast, but it's really hard not to see the importance of this one. It might be the last fiscal event before the UK general election, and that makes it a particularly important opportunity for the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, and the Conservatives more broadly to set out some of the key policies heading into the election. To discuss this, I have Alex Dawson with me. Alex is our UK country director. Hi, Alex. Hi. So, Alex, I want to stay on the budget itself just for a moment, because in addition to the looming election, we also had the announcement by the Office of National Statistics in mid-February that the UK has entered a technical recession at the end of last year. It's not the ideal backdrop for a budget. So what do we know about the budget itself? Do, do you have a sense of what some of the big ticket items might be that we should be looking out for? It's a really good question. And obviously, the budget and these fiscal events have become a real, obviously, important moment economically and in the political economics of a country, but also just in the political story more broadly. And I think it's worth thinking a little bit about how the Conservatives are thinking about this budget, which it is an opportunity for them to make people feel a little bit wealthier before this expected election later on in the year. And and as a consequence, a lot of the chatter in Westminster has been about how the Conservatives will try to use fiscal headroom that's available under their fiscal rules as defined, that headroom as defined by the OBR to cut taxes um, heading into the election. The problem is that from what we are hearing from various media reports and sources is that actually the Headroom is not quite as good as it was ahead of the last fiscal event in, I think, back in November, where the Chancellor was able to cut national insurance contributions by two points. And instead, we're going to have a slightly kind of thinner budget as a consequence of that, where, you know, the big ticket item, politically speaking, is potentially a small cut or a smaller cut to national insurance contributions. Potentially, I mean, the, the the media reporting lately has also suggested that some of this will be paid for by a new tax on refillable vape products. And, and, and those are going to be kind of the measures coming through. Now, I think there is a separate kind of question about Jeremy Hunt with his budgets. He always likes to have something that's going to be good for conservative backbenchers, that's going to be good for voters, and that's also going to be good for the technocrats type of people who'd be listening to this podcast, I'm sure. And so I think there are kind of a series of questions about what type of longer term economic reforms he might be able to smuggle into what may well be a quite a political budget, you know, whether there is something potentially around, you know, what goes on with pension funds and kind of the rules around them to make them more easily invest in the UK. There's a lot of speculation about the prospect of a British ISA to effectively help people uh, invest in UK listed uh, stocks and shares. And and I think that's going to be the real sort of treat for many people on budget day is looking at that package of growth measures and seeing kind of whether they might have uh, any impact on 
you know, technical recession, sort of one side or the other. But frankly, the, the the big problem in the UK economy has been that since the financial crisis, we just simply haven't grown uh, as we had been uh, in the years running up to it. And whether there is anything in the budget that Jeremy Hunt can announce that may be able to upend that trend. I think you make some very interesting points about the different constituencies he's trying to appeal to, the technocrats, the backbenchers, the voters. And I guess especially this question around making people feel a bit wealthier in advance of the election is a particularly interesting one because historically conservatives have been very eager to be the party of low tax and that has certainly appealed to a large segment of voters for a long time. Do you think that that is still true? Is that still what voters want from the conservatives? And where would you say does tax policy rank as a voter issue? So there, there are two answers to this. There's kind of what the what the the actual voter thinks. That's something that we examine a little bit actually through the research and insight work that we do here at Global Council. But then there is also what the you know your typical Tory MP or backbencher or policymaker thinks the voter thinks, and actually to a certain extent what they themselves want. So we have quite a, like a, a quite a loud constituency, I suppose, in the Conservative Party at the moment that feels that taxes are too high. They look at the policies around fiscal drag, so basically freezing a load of thresholds for income tax, and they think that effectively we 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 you know the government has pushed up taxes too far, and actually it'd be much better for us as a country to spend less money on public services in future. You know whether that's through wider reform or sort of starving the beast in kind of American political terms, uh, and therefore there is a kind of an argument for a tax cut for Jeremy Hunt, where it says, well, doing that will, you know, A, it'd be a good thing in and of itself, because they do generally tend to believe that cutting taxes is a good thing. B, it will also handle kind of a difficult constituency in the party. I think the problem it comes up with is that where a lot of the public are at the moment the groups that a tax cut appeals to are, you know, solid conservatives. They are reform-minded, you know, people who might back, well, you know, might well back Reform UK, and that's obviously a very important thing for Conservative Party at the moment is to try and win those people back. But the people that the government has lost to the Labour Party, to the Liberal Democrats, to, you know, other parts of the political landscape, typically more public spending is actually more important to them. So leaving aside kind of the points of political philosophy and sort of, you know, what you believe you're doing is right or wrong or whatever, the problem for the Conservatives at the moment is that a lot of the population, in terms of what they're telling pollsters, is that they want to find money for public services. And and obviously this is all in the context, and I think we shouldn't forget this, that over the course of the COVID crisis, over the course of the spike in the cost of living and the measures in, put in place to protect people when energy prices went through the roof as a consequence of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, the government spent an awful lot of money it didn't have to protect people through those periods. And therefore, you are going to have a big deficit to deal with that politicians don't normally want to think about coming up to an election time. And this is what leads the Conservatives to this kind of difficult balancing act of wanting to try and cut tax and do structural reforms on one side of the ledger and on the other side of the ledger, making sure that that spending isn't cut too far because people also love 
public spending too. And and also there's been a kind of an economic need to make sure that there's been a certain amount of public spending to kind of protect people through that. Obviously, how that then relates to kind of the wider cost of living crisis, inflation, etc. It means that actually for the Conservatives going into an election, it's a difficult story to tell to say that you are the party of tax cuts and the party of fiscal rectitude when you've just got all these other kind of countervailing trends. And I think that's the challenge that we're going to see epitomised for Jeremy Hunt on the 6th of March. Find me an incumbent government at the moment that is popular. There really aren't many in the West. You know, you look at Europe, you look at the US, and obviously the all politics in an election year in the UK, which is what we're in, you know, tends towards the domestic and the blinkers go up a little bit and you sort of, you forget to look over overseas. But but at the moment, the struggles that the Conservative Party are facing are both kind of, you know, local in particular, but also actually quite generic in a lot of respects in consideration of the geopolitical trends and the macroeconomic factors that they're having to handle. Absolutely. And I think it's going to be fascinating how that plays out in, in other countries around the world, and both this year, the year of elections and in, in the future years. Just to stay on the UK for a little bit longer, I'd love to hear your take on where you think this budget is going to leave Labour. What do you think um, Labour is going to do in response to this budget? Yeah, indeed. I've spoken about the economic arguments for tax cuts and kind of growth reforms. I've also, you know, highlighted a little bit of the kind of the internal politics the Chancellor will be wanting to manage. Well, there's another big set of politics, which is how it defines the Labour Party. And I think effectively what the government wants to do is set up a bit of a, a trap for the Labour Party. It wants to find a way of cutting tax and it wants to find a way of saying, well, you know, what we're going to do in future is cut public spending because the UK needs to live within its means. That's in our fiscal rules. We've got to do that. Labour, you accept these fiscal rules. So you fundamentally, you know, you're coming up to an election, you're saying that you're ready to govern. You need to come up with a decision as to whether you, because you accept these fiscal rules, you back the tax cut that we've made that's going to help working people to the tune of, you know, and they'll come up with a figure, you know, X hundred pounds a year or X thousand pounds a year, whatever, or you oppose it. And if you back it, Well, you then need to come up and say that you back the spending cuts that we've got penciled in to pay for it. And if you do that, that's going to be really problematic for you, Keir Starmer, because you're going to have the left wing of your party saying that we've got to stop accepting Tory economics and people didn't sign up for another round of austerity and all this kind of stuff. And if you don't accept it, you need to explain why you want to spend more money on public services where undoubtedly you'll never reform them that money will just end up being wasted instead of spending it on a tax cut for working people. And so, you know, it, it is as clear as the day is long that that is kind of what what broadly the chances kind of argument is going to be on the Labour Party. Just remember that that's not a bad thing necessarily in politics. I mean, subtlety is uh, it's not typically rewarded by the electorate, but it means that um, Labour are going to have to probably make a sort of a, a decision you know, whether it's strategic to kind of like back one of these two options or whether it's a tactical attempt to frankly just deflect the argument in terms of making sure that they hold on to this 20-point poll lead that they currently have. I mean, you know, for my money, I suspect what Labour will say is, well, you talk about a tax cut, actually uh, taxes are going up because you're going to hold the fiscal drag policy on income tax. And when it comes to spending cuts, well, look, who knows how bad the books are going to look because of the way you've treated them, oh, Jeremy Hunt, Rishi Sunak, etc. And uh, and they will just try and sidestep their way out of that argument. That's my view. Whether they do that 
you know, they, they could be bolder and they could be braver and they could try and make a strategic decision to back one or the other. I think it gets to the question of how much does Labour want to define itself on the terms of the governing party, potentially six to eight months before an election, where they have a chance of having Keir Starmer be the fifth Labour prime minister ever. Absolutely. I mean, Labour are currently looking pretty comfortable with their poll leader, as you were saying. But still, it's going to be interesting to watch how they get out of this trap that the Conservatives will try and set for them, especially because Labour um, in the past has had to do a lot of defending for how fiscally responsible they are or not. So that's going to be a very interesting one. We're going to watch the Labour response closely. We're going to watch what exactly the budget looks like and what your implications are if you're an investor or corporate in the UK. So stay in touch with our UK politics and policy team and our UK office and we'll keep you abreast of everything that's happening. On this note, we are at the end of this episode of the Global Month Ahead and we're clearly looking at a very interesting march. We are going to see whether elections in Iran unfold peacefully We're going to see whether Vladimir Putin gets the turnout he is looking for and whether the spring budget manages to appeal to all the different constituents that it needs to appeal to. As always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to any of what we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for our presenters and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thank you, Alexander, Thomas and Alex. And thanks to you for listening.